Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, UFOs. Seriously, we look at the U.S. government report on what it's now calling unidentified aerial phenomena and explore the cultural history and scientific taboo that has surrounded UFOs. UFOs have been embedded in the popular culture and associated with conspiracy theories. And three months after rebels killed the president of Chad in Central Africa, we talked to experts about the delicate balance of power that's emerging. There's still a lot of uncertainty about the transitional process. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. What does the U.S. government know about UFOs? The Pentagon is releasing a report on that very question later this month. The Pentagon's report on unidentified aerial phenomena finally came out, and it didn't mention the word extraterrestrial even once. But honestly, no one had really expected it to. Plenty of unidentified flying objects remain just that, unidentified and mysterious. This was a preliminary report that the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, set up last August by the Pentagon, was legally required to publish by the end of June. It covered unexplained sightings by Navy pilots between 2004 and 2021. Gemma, these are UFOs, right? Yeah, I'd call them that too. So last year, the U.S. government formally declassified three videos taken by Navy pilots that showed unidentified objects moving really fast through the air. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 100. These clips are just some examples of what are aptly named unidentified aerial phenomena. And so many UFO watchers, or ufologists as they're sometimes called, were excited that this report from the Pentagon might give them a signal or some evidence of an otherworldly explanation for these mysteries. The report didn't. Uh, It's been called a bit of a nothing burger here in the States. But I do think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And to help me read through the lines of what the Pentagon's report did actually say, I called up Christopher Impey. I'm uh, Chris Impey, professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona. Chris studies astronomy, using telescopes to study stars and galaxies, and also astrobiology, the search for signs of life. I asked him what his initial response was to the report when it came out. Well, given the hype, it was a bit disappointing. First of all, it was nine pages. I was expecting some, you know, dense thing that I'd have to read and pour over and parse in detail. And and then it's just this nine page thing, you know. My first reaction, of course, as a taxpayer was, 22 million? Really? For that? You know, uh, (laughs) if I was the professor grading it just for that, I'd give it worse than a C. Yeah, the nine pages went by really quick. It was actually very easy reading for a government report. Easy reading and and reasonably well written. Um, But as far as content and, you know, what it said, again, a little disappointing. Obviously, they threaded the needle that there was not a single mention of UFO. The word alien doesn't appear in the report. The word extraterrestrial doesn't appear in the report. I mean, it's very anodyne in the sense of avoiding any sort of hot button. They even had a category called other. Right, other. It's just a catch-all for the things that you haven't yet explained, which of course is most of it. The fact that the only one of 144 incidents that unequivocally they could categorize was a large deflating balloon. That was sort of my metaphorical response to the report. Oh, this is a large deflating balloon. (laughs) But so the report did uh, give us a bit of information. So can you run me through just kind of what it did say? Right. So 
given that a number of sightings out of the 144 that they were talking about, a number were just they were unable to categorize. A simple majority of the reports are terrestrial causes. So they did say that airborne debris, like plastic bags, atmospheric phenomena like ice crystals, conventional aircraft from the U.S. or other countries. So that was the biggest category, and that that's good to know that they can attribute it to conventional things. They also talked about sensor anomalies, which was interesting. There was no detail on that, but it made me think that they can't get good data unless they have multiple angles on it. So they are aware that the quality of the data is an issue. And so that was one of the conclusions, of course. But there was no sign of any scientific analysis. As a scientist, I didn't see any hint of that. So not much in there for either the ufologists or the scientists, it sounds like. No, but interestingly enough, we're talking about them in the same sentence. And that's what we're going to talk about later on with Chris. But before we get into that, let's go look at where this all began. A few days before the Pentagon report came out, I called up a historian. My name is Greg Egigian. I'm professor of history at Penn State University. Greg is a historian of science and medicine. And for the past few years, he's been writing a book on the cultural history of UFOs. I started off asking him when the idea of aliens and UFOs first originated in human history. Well, the idea of aliens actually goes back to ancient times. I mean, this idea that the world might actually be inhabited, not just our world, but other worlds. The question was a matter of real debate among philosophers, scientists, theologians, But in the Western world, at least, by the 18th century, it was pretty much widely accepted that alien civilizations existed out there. Huh. So what happened between the 18th century and today to get to the modern conception of UFOs? There's something that changes in the 19th century, in the 1800s. So that's when you first start to see these reports of people seeing what they say were flying ships, flying airships overhead. So people tended to see things or talk about seeing things that looked like things they were familiar with. So when they saw airships, they literally saw ships. They saw vessels that would normally be afloat on the sea or the ocean, but now they were in flight. And, you know, in the early part of the century, people would see uh, these things steam-powered. <laughs> um, But it's really not until you get to the summer of 1947 that people began to regularly speak of seeing flying objects that some attributed to extraterrestrials. So that's what the 20th century added to the story. So you say 1947 was when everything changed. What happened? So it was a fellow, a private pilot by the name of Kenneth Arnold, was uh, flying his small plane around near Mount Rainier in Washington State. As he was flying around, he said what he saw was some sort of glimmer or shine that caught his eye. And when he looked, he saw what he described as nine very odd-shaped vessels flying in formation. Uh, They didn't look like anything he had ever seen before. They didn't really have a kind of standard fuselage. They kind of looked like flying wings. He he lands on uh, on the ground, uh, reports this, um, is curious about it, talks to some reporters. And when he's asked to sort of describe by one reporter about how they moved, he said, well, they moved like a saucer would if you skipped it across water. And some very clever enterprising journalist came up with the headline Flying Saucers, 
And from that point forward, they were flying saucers, even though he never uttered the phrase itself. And we know that, uh, I think it was a Gallup poll six weeks after the event, discovered that 90% of Americans within six weeks had heard the term flying saucer. So to become a meme well before the age of the internet and social media. Okay, so it becomes a meme trending, but is this the real birth of the modern UFO movement? This is the beginning of the phenomenon of what some call, and I like to call too, the flying saucer era, our contemporary idea of UFOs. And it begins by the fact that within days, you start to hear reports of other people in the country describing having seen something like this or things like this in the sky. Within weeks, too, you basically get the United States Air Force says, we've got to look into this. So they set up a small group of people to start investigating this stuff. And that begins the whole process of the U.S. military looking into this phenomenon, something that's going to continue on for decades. But it also triggers a lot of press interest. And within several weeks, not only the national media are covering this story, but the international media are covering this story. It's a worldwide phenomenon within months. And it is covered primarily as an American story. Something's going on in the United States. What is it? Is this stuff genuine? Uh, Some countries, in Europe particularly, sort of push it off. And they say, well, you know what this is? This is the latest American fad. This is the craze, like the Charleston, right? Um, But within the span of just a few more weeks, you get reports of sightings from countries in different parts of the world. Then they start covering that stuff. And then it's really by 1948 when a National Guard pilot in January 1948 in the United States goes off and, and says he is chasing a UFO and his airplane crashes. And it's widely covered internationally as the first casualty of a UFO. And that's when people across the world start to say there's something to this story. Okay, we get this explosion of interest. But why did this emerge at this particular moment in American history? And did the government have anything to do with it? There's two things that happen really parallel with one another. First of all, these government-sponsored investigations. And in the United States, here the investigations being conducted are going to be centered in one place, and that is with the United States Air Force. So the Air Force sets in motion a number of different projects. The first is called Project Sign. Uh, That is disbanded. It's replaced by Project Grudge for a few years. And that finally is going to get replaced in the early 50s by Project Blue Book, which is going to continue up to 1969. And basically here, it's Air Force personnel, along with some consultants who work with the military, who are basically interested in one question. And that has been the consistent question right on through to today world. Does this stuff represent a national security threat? They weren't interested in a deep scientific analysis of this stuff. That was their major question. On the other hand, you have a lot of people out in the general public who are just utterly fascinated with this question. It's a mystery. And if you look at the period that I find in many ways the most fascinating period, that period from about 1947 to 1950, Everybody involved is just lost as to what's going on. What is this? Is this real? If it's real, what are these things? Who's behind them? 
Yeah, some people throw around the idea of aliens, but that's not really the major one that people glom onto. Most people, if if they think this stuff is real, they think it's either secret weapons of the U.S. military or it's secret weapons or secret aircraft of the Soviets. Now, surprise, right? Yeah, yeah. People had just left World War II where people had developed these new kinds of things. So that begins this kind of public obsession with this whole world. And so what basically develops are, I think you'd have to call the equivalent of fan groups, right? Flying saucer clubs and organizations on a very small scale local level where people get together, trade articles that they're reading. They're like little, you know, book clubs or something where people start to sort of debate these issues amongst themselves. And that's ultimately going to be really the seeds of the growth in the 1950s and 60s of UFO organizations at the first the local, then the national, then the international level. And where is UFOlogy in the UFO movement today in the United States? And more broadly, how does 21st century America think of UFOs in general? I think that actually is something that needs a lot more research because um, I think we're pretty clear on what it used to represent and what it used to be a part of. Um, we know that up until the 90s, the Cold War played a, a really, really fundamental, formative role in how we imagined UFOs, both in terms of how we thought about our prospects technologically, but also about the fears and anxieties we had. With the end of the Cold War, and I've tracked this with media coverage, you can look and basically over the course of the late 90s into the early 2000s, UFO coverage was nominal. It wasn't on, no pun intended, on anybody's radar very much. Nobody was focusing on this stuff, right? Um, sure. <laughs> with the 2017 revelations about this secret UFO project or program in the Pentagon, um, we had a kind of a new resurgence of interest in this. When I look at what I, and what I see in the way this gets covered and talked about is I see basically a lot of the same elements we always saw before. Are these things alien? If they're not alien, are these things terrestrial, meaning therefore they're somehow being built by what? Our military, by somebody else's military? Are people hoaxing? Are people making mistakes and subject to optical illusions? All these same kinds of questions are sort of being bandied about. I find it all actually in so many ways really reminiscent of the 1940s and 50s in a lot of ways. Has this continued to be a American phenomenon or is this gone out and gone to the wider world? It's always been global. Now that said, there are certain parts of the world where the UFO phenomenon and interest in UFOs has been more important than other places. So we know that Europe and South America, for instance, have been other really, really big hubs. Also, we have to include, I think, Australia and New Zealand. South Africa, Japan has shown always a great deal of interest in it. The former Soviet Union, now present-day Russia. We also know that different governments across the world have at different periods of time investigated this or had dedicated investigated UFO desks. Spain under Franco had a desk de dedicated to this. Sweden's defense staff 
already in the early 50s was doing this kind of stuff. In the United Kingdom, the Ministry of Defense had a UFO desk that went from 1950 to 2009. And what's also interesting is that when you get to the 2000 knots and the 2000 teens, you get a whole bunch of countries and air forces and defense ministries who all start to declassify or unclassify their formerly classified documents about UFOs. The UK, Chile did so, the United States did so. So there has always been a great deal of interest shown in this phenomenon, though more concentrated in some areas as opposed to other areas. Something I keep coming across is that 95% of all UFO events are totally explainable, but that means 5% aren't. Uh, How do the government reports deal with those? Um, They tend to be, as I suspect we're going to see with this report coming out, say, you know, we can put forward certain kinds of ideas of what this might have been, but in the end, we don't know. They are satisfied or content to live with ambiguity, I guess is the best term. From the government's perspective, they go, we don't know, but it ain't a threat. And that's good enough for us. Yep. I think that's it in a nutshell. Gotcha. So what would it take, should it be done, to go and actually look into that 5%? Do you think people are going to get answers? Do you think there's going to be a bit of a shift here? What I see going on in my conversations with scientists is I've been seeing some movement in the form of a willingness to sit there and say, this stuff is worthy of a conversation and may be worthy of looking into more seriously than we've done it before. And my explanation for that shift is that I think the critically important change that has happened since, say, the 1970s, 80s, and 90s is the discovery of so many exoplanets. The understanding now that there are large numbers, not too far away from us, relatively in astronomical terms, that are clearly planets that could possibly have life on it, right? Intelligent life might be pushing it, but life. That therefore, habitable planets are not rarities, but they in fact happen with um, surprising regularity. I think that fact has made some people in the scientific community, specifically among astrophysicists and astronomers, much more willing to see in this something of a serious kind of academic conversation. That's new. Hmm. I got to ask you here, obviously, Greg, um, when you think about UFOs, where do they sit in your mind? And are you excited about the potential of uh, them getting more weight in the halls of science like that? I am excited about the uh, prospect that this whole topic and all that goes with it has returned after really lying fallow for, for almost two decades, really. I think we discover so much about ourselves when we start to look into this thing. We have an opportunity when we do this to ask ourselves big questions about what are our priorities? How do we see our place in the world? How do we see our place in the universe? How do we think about the planet? I mean, one of the interesting things is that the UFO phenomenon of the 1950s and 60s helped to, in fact, feed a consciousness about our planet and what we were doing to it. And for me personally, what I'm excited about is as we dig more into this, it gives us a chance to sort of uh, 
do some accounting, right? Cultural accounting about how we know the things we know. What does science mean? What's the nature of technology and where's technology going? And should it go in the directions it's going? Those are all, to me, really, really important things to be having conversations about. All right, Greg, it's been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Sure, Dan. Thanks very much. To find evidence of life off Earth, well, that's the dream of pretty much every astronomer. And Chris Impey, the astronomer we talked to earlier, has been doing that. He just doesn't do it using UFOs. So I asked him what that search for life looks like from his perspective. So astrobiology and the astronomy research community is the search for life in the universe, and we haven't found life anywhere else, so it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress. And most of the search involves looking for what we think is the most abundant life anywhere else, which is microbes. You can't even see microbes when they're trillions of miles away, so the best you can do as an astronomer is to find a situation like the Earth, where the oxygen we breathe was produced by microbes billions of years ago. So you basically look for a planet whose atmosphere has been altered by microbes and photosynthesis. So that's the approach astronomers are using with exoplanets. But in parallel with that, there's this SETI activity, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and that most clearly connects to aliens and technology. And that is a listening experiment. You're just assuming that some other civilizations have developed radio transmitters or lasers or other high-tech forms of potential communication, and you're listening for signals from stars far away. And that's been going on for over half a century with nothing result, you know, no message. It's called the great silence. So that's sort of been a failure. Now, people who believe that UFOs represent alien visitations will say, well, why are you guys spending all this time listening? You know, they're here already, you know. And that's where scientists tend to draw back and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you know how, what kind of evidence we would need to be convinced of it. I mean, in a nutshell, the kind of evidence that's mostly missing, not completely, but mostly missing is physical evidence. Videos alone are not convincing. And so I think this average scientist who's not just going to consign this all to the garbage can is going to say, well, okay, you have these various visual sightings, anecdotal evidence. But out of all that, tens of thousands of reports over the years, Surely there's a little physical evidence. Surely you can give us a little sample of some metal that we could analyze in a lab that we could say, no, we didn't do that. We didn't make that. We couldn't make that. Um, And that's sort of the missing piece for me and for a lot of my colleagues. So do you think there are questions worth asking about UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomenon? Yes. I think the the subset of sightings that involve extraordinary uh, rates of motion or changes of motion. You know, we know what the laws of physics are, right? And so if you really have a situation where it's not the size and the shape, but it's actually the trajectory or the velocity, those are, of course, interesting and worth knowing more about. Um, And that's probably the biggest category. But then there are some types of physical evidence out there. Peter Stark, a professor at Stanford, he led a committee that actually investigated a couple of decades ago the subset of reports of UFOs that had associated physical evidence and, again, found that some subset of them were really not easy to explain with conventional physics. Hmm. But the trouble with the phenomenon is repeatability. You know, science is based on repeatability. If you drop something, it falls the same way. Gravity is super repeatable. And when you don't have repeatability, if something just happens once, that makes it really hard to study scientifically. 
so you mentioned earlier that, you know, your colleagues have shied away from the UFO stuff being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you think this might change that feeling uh, if one of your colleagues or yourself wanted to actually reach out into the Pentagon or pitch it to a funder or something? Uh, do you think that is changing now? It, it moves the bar a little bit, but not substantially because you're fighting against this current of the fact that UFOs have been embedded in the popular culture and associated with conspiracy theories. And there's a clearly a, a huge fringy crank element to it. And, and that guilt by association for a lot of scientists is just enough that they won't want to go there. So that's a tough thing, because even though they might be intellectually curious and think there might be something to investigate, and there clearly are a subset of reports that we don't have a simple explanation for, that is a barrier to entry for most scientists, because they worry about their reputations and what colleagues will think. And they know very well, and I did a little web search for this just to be sure, the National Science Foundation, where a lot of scientists get their money from the government, you know, their active award database of 100,000 awards, recent and current, um, there's not a single one that involves anything like this research. NASA wouldn't fund the SETI, which is the scientific search for extraterrestrial intelligence, for three decades. So even that sort of scientific search for ET um, was not funded by the government. The Pentagon report says that they would like more data to be able to study these things. Mm -hmm. What might that effort to study this look like? Well, I think it would look like a set of them with their you know, scientists and experts opening the door to collaborate in a group with scientists from outside. So they get some external opinions, you know, homing in on that subset of sightings where you had multiple modes of observation. You had visual, radar, infrared, say where you had a significant time span of observation, not just a few seconds, so you could actually track something. I think the other thing the military could do now that they're being a little more transparent is this is a worldwide phenomena. If you actually pooled worldwide the subset of UFO sightings from the militaries of the world, assuming we're collaborating with them, they're not adversary like Russia or China. So I think doing it worldwide would be a very fruitful thing. And are you hopeful that uh, a serious look at this kind of stuff will be removed from the, the conspiracies? Yeah, I think Congress could direct the federal agencies that do scientific research to set up mechanisms for scientists to collaborate with the Pentagon. And if it happened at that level, scientists, I think, would participate. So Congress could actually play a significant role in this. And um, just speaking with your colleagues, are you guys excited about that or you got better things to do? Well, I, you know, if, if I got the idea that I might get a treasure trove of the best of the best UFO site, it's just hard data to analyze, not, not anecdotes or reports, because I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, I mean, I would spend some time on it, and I probably know colleagues that would too. Awesome, Chris. Uh, thank you again. It's been a pleasure chatting with you here. So uh, we'll keep an eye out, I guess. I did just take a flight yesterday. No UFOs spotted, unfortunately. So Okay, well, you got to keep your eyes open. There, the truth is out there, as we know. <laughs> you can read a story that Chris Impey wrote about the Pentagon's report on theconversation.com. Find a link in the show notes, along with some further reading on exoplanets and questions about whether we're alone in the universe. We're taking a quick time out here to tell you about another podcast from Pushkin that we think you'll like, Cautionary Tales. Host Tim Harford draws on history and social science to vividly retell the stories of great crimes, accidents and disasters of the past. 
pointing out valuable lessons for us all from the dithering death and destruction. You'll ride with the Light Brigade as they charge headlong to certain death. Watch the trial of the art forger who fooled the Nazis and shudder at the deeds of a kindly doctor who was in fact killing his patients. You can binge the entire season of Cautionary Tales right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, for our second story, we're heading to Chad in Central Africa. Violence and political instability are on the rise in Chad and in its neighboring countries. Yeah, just this week, a summit of foreign ministers met in Rome to discuss the threat from Islamic State in the Lake Chad Basin, which is an area that includes Chad, northeast Nigeria, Cameroon and Niger. In Rome today, foreign ministers from across the globe met to discuss how to counter ISIS. For the past 30 years, Chad had been ruled by one man, Idris Deby, and his regime was seen as a crucial partner in efforts to improve security in the region, particularly by the French. But in April, just a few weeks after being re-elected for a sixth term, Deby was killed suddenly in an attack by rebels. His son, a general, took charge of a transitional military council promising to hold new elections within 18 months. Called a coup by some, it won the backing of the French. French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian said the exceptional circumstances justified the move. I spoke to two researchers who've looked at the inside workings of politics in Chad to find out what forces are now at play. My name is Rose Henningsen. I work at the Royal Danish Defence College at the Institute for Strategy and War Studies. And I'm specialised in the Sahel region and especially military interventions and civil war. And I have focused quite a lot on the regime strategies and regime a survival, which seems to play a big role in, in how Western intervention unfolds. Hello, I'm Line Engbo Gissel. I'm an associate professor at Roskilde University, and I'm researching the politics of international justice, particularly in Africa. And particularly, I'm interested in how the International Criminal Court has changed politics in Africa. Okay. And we're talking to you today because you've both contributed to an article for the conversation. Um, But before we get into talking about that and the research that you've done, can you briefly explain what's been happening in Chad in the last few months? What happened in Chad is pretty uh, extraordinary. The sitting president who has been the president of Chad since 1991 was killed in a battle in the northern part of Chad. 68-year-old President Debbie is said to have died from injuries sustained while visiting troops on the front line of a fight against northern rebels. It was an um, insurgent group from northern Libya who uh, went into Chad and the president chose to go up to oversee the, the combat and was, was killed in action. Idris Deby had been the main political factor for almost 30 years and his death is very unsettling to the political situation in Chad. So what has been going on is that some of the insurgent group who have been active since 2000, they have moved to Libya And from there, they have been able to establish a power base and uh, regroup and gain access to weapon and uh, recruitment. And they were able to move into Chad. The region and and the country were incredibly shocked by what happened. So what's happened since then? So afterwards, there has been a military council who have taken power. Led by his son, Mohammed Deby has been dissolved and Mr. Deby's 37-year-old son, Mohamed Kaka, a four-star general, has been named interim president. And uh, so far they've been able to hold on to power. They have uh, promised to hold democratic elections next year. They'll probably do it. How much it will matter, we'll have to see. And 
so far he has avoided any uh, splinter within the inner circles of the regime. We have seen a few ministers who opposed his uh, military committees hold on power, but this has not been uh, some of the prominent persons within the regime. Among the civil society, there's been a lot of protests. At least two people were killed and 27 injured in Chad on Tuesday, as demonstrators demanded a return to civilian rule. Which have been cracked down violently. And also we've seen that the Central African Republic have uh, launched attacks on the Chadian border. Chadian reinforcements have arrived at the border in the last couple of days, near the place where the attack on a Chadian outpost by Central African forces took place on Sunday killing six Chadian soldiers. Very low scale, but still quite unsettling. On the other hand, the current regime won a military victory against the insurgent who went into northern Chad and killed Christopher. Soldiers returning from the front line to a cheering crowd and a gaggle of journalists. Chad's military claims the battle against the rebels in the country's north is done. So there's some amount of stability. Mohammed Dibi is holding onto power right now, but there's still a lot of uncertainty about the transitional process within the coming year. Will we see more high-ranking officers split from, from the regime? That's still highly uncertain. What does this tell us about the way that Chad's politics work and how it interacts with its neighbours in the Sahel region? How have you come at this question in your own research? Yeah, so we've drawn on the work of a historian on Africa, Frederick Cooper, who has conceptualized this idea of the gatekeeper state. And his point is to say that, well, many African states, they are very relying on the resources that come in and out of the country. So that means income through the physical border, the gate, but also more metaphorically, the support from military aid, the development aid, and uh, kind of all the different relations with both neighboring and other foreign partners. So his theory is to look at how resources that are kind of accumulated at the gate are distributed internally in order to keep the state captured or keep the security of the regime. So we looked at the chat and found that it's kind of fits fairly well in its political economy, this notion of a gatekeeper state. And we were puzzled by how the regime of Idris debut had survived for so many years. Um, so we developed the gatekeeper theory a little bit further to look at what are the sources of regime security for a state like Chad. And to our mind, at least, one source of regime security is international support, which means both the kind of military support, but also development aid and also legitimacy through, for instance, international institutions. But another source of support is internal alliances. If you don't have alliances in internally, you'll have a lot of uh, insurgencies. How does a person or a regime grab hold of the gate? So basically... The regime that is in power controls the borders. They issue import and export and licenses and taxes. And they also control the bank accounts through which foreign support is entering the country. So that's why there's been a lot of attempts to take over power. What does that mean domestically? 
for Chad and, and what's happened to its internal politics? One of the things that, that has really been a threat throughout the history of, of Chad is there's a lot of militarized elites who really use violence as a kind of a political signaling and a way to get access to, for example, oil income. So we see that a lot of the democratic movements or NGOs, they're really sidelined by the militarized elites who can negotiate quite easily with the, with the regime. So that means that, that on the one hand, we have a, a very active, vibrant civil society who protests, who uh, goes to the media, and they're really uh, vocal. And on the other hand, we have what you can call the real politics of chat, where a very few militia leaders, former insurgents, get access to the funding, despite the fact that chat have been an oil producer and oil exporter for almost uh, 20 years now. We really haven't seen any development in the country. And it's the people who lose. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You can see that and the way often the money goes to specific companies who are owned by persons very close to the regime and they get very uh, lucrative contracts. How is that different from any other authoritarian state, though, where funds might be monopolized by a particular person or party? Couldn't you say that something similar was happening in, say, Saudi Arabia? Yeah, well, I think there are quite a few concepts that try to describe the African state, and they are not all mutually exclusive. So you have also the idea of the kleptocratic state, you have um, the neo-patrimonial state, you have lots of different notions of, of the state. And the gatekeeper state kind of overlaps with quite a few of the others, but what it really points to is the nodal point through which resources pass. And borders are really important uh, for that reason in, in the gatekeeper state. And in Chad, we see that a lot of these resources from the oil have actually been used to secure or even use strategically the border. Part of the story here is the relationship that Chad has with its international partners, such as France, who've had a close security partnership with Chad in their fight against Islamist militants in the region. What role did French support play in propping up the Debbie regime? Some observers say that the French are in doubt about what to think about the Debbie regime around 2008, 2009. And at some moment, they consider simply abandoning the regime and accepting that the insurgents are likely to take power and cooperate with them. At other points, we see that they really um, support a democratic transition. There are uh, elections, I should say, but everybody knows that they are not really fair elections. So we have all these consideration uh, by the friends who have this really engaged regional ally in the fight against militant Islamism. And on the other hand, we have a consideration about a democratic uh, chat would be more stable. But obviously, you see it, 2008, the friends come to the assistance of the regime in, in the end. And we see that in 2019, at the latest, when one of the insurgent group in northern Chad tried to move against the capital in Jamina. Paris has conducted airstrikes in the central African country of Chad. The aerial attack helps the Chadian army capture 250 fighters. And that was quite extraordinary because these were clearly not terrorists, but the airplane were part of Operation Bakan, which is a counter-terrorist mission. So that was really France propping up the regime. Looking back at your idea of gatekeeper politics, what prospects do you think the Mohamed Debi regime has of maintaining that, that gatekeeper balance? I think that, that for now, he has a fair chance, actually, Mohamed Debi, of uh, controlling the gate and uh, balancing the needs of international support with domestic alliances. So we don't really see a change in his relations. 
France quickly came out and, and said they uh, supported this transition process and the fact that Mohamed uh, Debi took control of power. So I would say that in the short run, he seems to be able to control the gate and be able to balance the different needs that his father mastered so well. But on the other hand, you have a lot of structural pressure on, on Chad. The oil production is going down. There's this constant insurgency coming from the southern area of Libya, where Chadian insurgent group can take permanent hold. And you have all the protests within the uh, civil society that's also, of course, uh, pressuring the regime. So in the long run, we might see that this will lead to, uh, to additional destabilization and perhaps insurgency war. You can read a story that Lina and Trolls wrote about their research on The Conversation, and we'll pop a link in the show notes. Ten this week's episode, we've got some recommended reading from Naomi Joseph in London. Hi, I'm Naomi Joseph, and I'm the arts and culture editor at The Conversation in London. My first recommendation is a story I worked on by Molly Silk at the University of Manchester. While the West can name their space missions and programmes after Apollo and Artemis, China wants the world to know it can do the same. The country has its own rich mythology connected to space. For instance, the space station, which China just launched three astronauts to, is called Tiangong. This translates as Heavenly Palace, which, according to the country's mythology, is where the celestial ruler resides and reigns supreme over the universe. Molly writes about how the government has made a concerted effort to establish a distinct Chinese space culture. They have done so by grounding the program in the country's traditions. Using such legendary and distinct Chinese names is a signal to the international community that space is not the exclusive domain of the West. She also writes about how they are notably promoting China's space ambitions abroad through science fiction in films like The Brilliant Wandering Earth and The Three-Body Problem book trilogy, which is set to be adapted as a Netflix original series. My second story is by Natasha Ruiz Gomez at the University of Essex. Natasha is a Rodan scholar with a secret. She hates the thinker. All rippling muscles and sensual flesh, the statue of a man caught in deep thought is Auguste Rodin's most well-known work, but Natasha just can't stand it. Created in 1880, its in-your-face machismo is a product of a time when masculinity and the male body were topics of great focus in France. The country had just lost the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, and birth rates were on the decline. As a result, bodybuilding madness hit the nation and wanton sexual abandon was championed, something the artist threw himself into a bit too eagerly. In her article, Natasha ponders why this monument to bad behaviour and toxic traits is still so loved. Naomi Joseph in London there. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and to the conversation editors Moina Spooner and Stephen Kahn and to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram, theconversation.com, or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. And you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review where podcast apps allow you to. And please tell your friends and family about the show, especially those who may never have listened to a podcast before, but you think they might enjoy listening to the scholars we're talking to every week. Show them how to find a podcast and how to find us. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. 
And I'm Dan Marino. Thanks, as always, for listening.